You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Real Vision Live. For Real Vision, I'm Max Wheatley. I'm joined today by Arthur Hyde, partner and co-portfolio manager at Segar Capital, and Adam Rodman, founder and CIO at Segar Capital. Today, we're going to be discussing the uranium market and the nuclear energy sector more broadly. It's been a while since we've talked with Adam. We had Arthur on back in April, really at the start of the coronavirus pandemic, talking about uh, some shutdowns that had happened in the market. It really is perfect timing every single time we have you guys on because we had another big news uh announcement this morning. I'm sure we'll talk about that, but uh, I really want to just get started and update viewers on where we are since the last time we spoke with you, Arthur. Great. Well, I'm probably going to kick things off, Max, um, and then uh, Arthur and I will bat things back and forth, mm -hmm. but it's been a pretty active year for the nuclear power industry and you know the uranium uh, commodity sector as well. Um, Arthur did a, uh, you know, almost scary good job of predicting um, some of the COVID-impacted supply um, effects uh, back in April when he was last on. Um, but to kind of recap generally, you know, we were on Real Vision uh, in the spring uh, as the worst of COVID was kind of raging, um, talking about how, how the nuclear industry ends up being pretty unique, certainly unique in the commodity sphere in that the demand side of the equation, i.e., you know, reactors running globally, aren't usually impacted uh, by a crisis like like COVID. Um, baseload power that generally runs 24/7, um, very resilient to all kinds of shocks, including pandemics. But that with a super concentrated supply chain, um, that we could potentially see uh, some vulnerabilities uh, that could that would uh, lead to rises, maybe even dramatic rises in in the price of the commodity. Um, and, and actually, that's exactly what happened. So uh, both Cameco and Kazatomprom, which would be the world's two largest producers of uranium, had their own version of supply uh, impacts. Uh, Cameco brought down the Cigar Lake mine. Kazatomprom uh, had to do a portfolio-wide uh, supply uh, production decrease. Um, and it led to spot prices rising to a high of uh, around $34 from a little more than $10 below that, um, you know, pre-COVID. And, you know, while we hardly believe our thesis is a COVID trade, um, so to speak, uh, key front and center on the commodity side of things is that uh, because of underinvestment in the space, the supply chain um, production centers globally have become way, way too concentrated. And when you combine that with a rather unique scenario uh, defined by the fact that consumers of uranium and producers of uranium are very mismatched globally, any hiccup or, or sneeze that you get in this market um, causes problems. And I guess as we'll probably discuss later today, you're, you're starting to feel that um, again. But I'll also kick it back to Arthur to, to summarize the other things that have been uh, developing in the last six months. Yeah, maybe just to, to rewind. So we were on in April, I think, at the time the Cigar Lake shutdown was still uh, expected to be four weeks. 
we made a case uh, for the fact that it would be significantly longer between you know the recording and, and airing. Uh, Camco confirmed a longer shutdown, driving prices higher, and, and obviously driving some some positive sentiment in the space. Um, in July, Camco uh, announced that they would be bringing back Cigar, um, and the Kazakhs announced that they would be returning their workforce in September. And so I think that some of the sentiment in the space that was really driven more by the COVID dynamics um, reversed a bit. Um, prices came down a bit, um, but, but below the surface, there was a lot more healthy signs than I think most um, kind of tourists in the sector really would understand. So without going into too much detail, um, there was a large location spread differential between delivery at Cigar Lake, where um, significant assets had been shut down, and other delivery points in the U.S. and in France. Um, that location spread drove market quotes up to $34, but for delivery in France and the U.S., they never rose above 30. So while uh, quoted spot prices, which most, um, most generalists would be looking at on a week-to-week -week basis, have dropped from 34 to 30, um, for most of global uh, delivery points, they've actually just been stable. And so I think a real healthy sign from our perspective, given that we spent a lot of time with traders, with fuel buyers, with people within the space, um, was that you never really saw pricing for most global delivered pounds drop at all. It really stayed firm through the fall. And that told us we're actually in a much healthier market than, than many believe. Um, less oversupplied, um, more demand, and so leading into today's announcement, which is a further shutdown uh, due, due to COVID concerns at Cigar Lake, we think we're primed um, at, at a much higher starting point to see the market um, really move. Okay, I think it's I think it's also helpful for viewers to understand how important it is for prices to move up for a lot of these producers. Uh, the prices at at, at least pre-COVID um, were were way too low. Uh, for it to be economically viable, I think it's helpful to understand, you know, what is the price point that that these producers need to get to um, for for them to be producing in an economically viable way? And then also the, the contracting. I know long-term contracting is extremely important as well as the spot price. Are, are we seeing any movement there in terms of contract prices moving? That's, up? A, that's a great next question, you know, Max. Um, and, and to your point, I think the all-important one, um, your prices, I think, are still, or we know, are still too low. Um, for a majority of the global production base. Um, you, you, uranium is pretty unique in that you could be at a price environment where only maybe the top quartile is anywhere close to uh, break even um, and still not have prices rise dramatically. And we won't go through the kind of uranium commodity fundamentals again, but probably go back to any one of our uh, prior videos to see why prices can stay irrationally low for a long time. And then on the flip side of cycles, uh, stay irrationally high. But needless to say, to your point, um, we're still at far too low prices. Um, you know, Cameco and Casadimprom both have continued their supply discipline even through the rise to $30. Um, and that is indicative of the fact that they're not earning, uh, in some cases, any return and certainly enough, not enough shareholder return for both companies, given the macro environment that we're in. Um, but I'll get to your contracting question next. Um, but I want to you know, really highlight to the viewers, and it ties in, I think, a little bit to why prices in the stocks are moving today. A lot of tourists or the average maybe investor that, that comes by thinks of this as a price cycle. 
you know, I should be buying uranium stocks because I'm seeing the spot price rise. And what we've hinted at, hopefully pretty strongly in our different Real Vision interviews, is that the real key to believing in this thesis, to the extent that you do believe in this thesis, is that it's about the capital cycle, the CapEx cycle, not the price cycle. You know, where do we need to be to incentivize the new production that we need going out in the coming years as nuclear is a growth industry? Um, not looking in the rear view, rear view mirror to essentially say what's reflected by spot. And so when the lowest cost producers are asking for 40 or 45 or $50 a pound, and we know the marginal cost curve is rising from there, we still have a lot of upside in pricing, we think, to balance this market out, not even over the near term, but for the next structural deficit that we see, or for the structural deficit, uh, sorry, that we see over the next five years. And Arthur, do you want to take contracting just so we, we keep batting it back and forth? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that this has been um, a complex year in the market. Um, there's, there's a lot of topics that we probably haven't addressed and we probably won't address today, such as the Russian suspension agreement. There's been a lot of geopolitical forces that have delayed some of the contracting negotiations that um, investors have been focused on for some time. What we're sure of is that 2020 will be a significant inventory draw year. So utilities were more focused on keeping their plants operating, um, making sure that they were um, covered on their near-term delivery points than they were on procuring uh, uranium. And so as a result, yes, we saw some movement in spot prices, and yes, we saw uh, some purchases, but a lot of that was driven by intermediaries and producers. And what I think we've yet to see is that contracting move where utilities actually commit to seven to 10 year purchases of material. Um, and, and what I think this year has done is taken a lot of the runway away for them, right? It, it's just been a year where rather than committing to long-term production, they've had to sit and draw inventory. Um, what's more interesting maybe is that going out in the future, 2021 gets more difficult. You've got two major assets running out of ore, uh, going to, you know, they basically depleted. So it's not a shut down based on uh, price movements. It's just that those mines, which have been producing for 20 to 30 years, are going offline. So the supply-demand dynamic moving to 2021 um, certainly isn't on the side of buyers. Okay. Well, I know we do want to move on from, from where the, the commodity price is and what's driving that from the supply-demand side. But I do think it is important to talk about, you, you mentioned it twice now, you have tourists in the space. We are seeing some movement from the equities, and I'm sure viewers are interested in that. Uh, from your perspective, is it the tourists in the space that are that are maybe in here for the, the short-term gains, moving off of uh, what what they're seeing in terms of headlines, or is there you know serious money moving in, recognizing what you guys are talking about in terms of the longer-term trend? Is this potentially a fake out, or is this real money moving into the space? Yeah, you know, Max. I mean, that's a that's a great question, and uh, I wish we had a crystal ball uh, to to you know to track every every flow dynamic in the market. You know, I can say anecdotally, um, Arthur and I have obviously been resource investors for a long time, um, focused on cyclical industries for, for most of our careers and, and spent the last couple of years hyper-focused on this. So we're kind of front and center, I think, in fielding you know, inbounds from what we would consider to be generalists. And what I can say is that that's definitely picked up over the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, importantly, in today's market, you know, I think every big move in a sector um, especially small sectors like this that don't have passive flows, don't have indexation, et cetera, they, they need a kind of a, a thematic hook. Um, and while we are 
extraordinarily confident in all of the fundamental macro work that we've done on supply and demand, on the contracting cycle, et cetera. We've also spoken a lot about the uphill battle that that nuclear unfairly has to fight um, in terms of their contribution to the clean energy mix. And I think that last point is actually shifting dramatically um, over the last few weeks, which makes us optimistic that this isn't a head fake or only you know retail euphoria. Of course, we can never predict. You know, the stocks have moved a lot. Um, our price targets are a whole lot higher than they are here, but markets go up and down. Um, euphoria is met with skepticism, and I can't say exactly where we are, you know, in that cycle. But what I can say is that um, with an increasing number of countries, in some cases, making legally binding commitments to carbon uh, neutrality, and nuclear being a cornerstone part of those pledges. Investors generally are starting, and they're very early, even with these price moves, in understanding that that nuclear and uranium is a part of the clean energy transition. And so thematically speaking, when you're thinking about electric vehicles or hydrogen fuel cells or solar companies, nuclear and nuclear-related companies should be mentioned kind of in the same, in the same thematic context. And so, again, we can't break down all of the flows into the sector. Um, there are surely tourists, um, as with any momentum move, but we have a pretty good eye into this from the institutional side. And I think that the bigger funds that are sniffing around and that are taking toehold positions are doing so um, because they believe that nuclear is a key part of the of the clean energy transition trade. Um, and that's a long term one. You know, that's a multi-decade uh, investment thesis. Yeah. yeah, and maybe I could just tag on the back of it a little bit. Um, I would also say that in October specifically, we think there was probably a little bit of selling in a lot of these names into the election. And I think yeah. the bias there was that um, traditionally the Democratic Party is, is viewed as anti-nuclear. That dates back to the 1970s. And so for most resource investors, the assumption was that a Biden pres presidency would not necessarily be positive for uranium. Um, we wrote up a, a blast out to our investors in October and discuss why we didn't think that was the case. Um, you know, it was one of these weird election cycles where we could make a bull case for uranium in any one of the outcomes. So in a sharply democratic election, um, we actually viewed a lot of the more progressive uh, environmental policies that Democrats put, could have put forward as actually very much in favor of existing nuclear plants in the U.S. So if you talk about a carbon tax, anything of that nature, suddenly your baseload clean energy sources of nuclear plants are completely re-rated within the energy system. Um, if the Trump administration had been elected, um, the Republicans were clearly pushing for pro-nuclear policies during his administration. And then what we kind of outlined is kind of the Goldilocks outcome, which is a divided uh, outcome where Biden's policies are front and center, but he's working with Republicans to pass an energy legislation, the clear olive branch becomes nuclear. And so we actually felt quite comfortable in October taking election risk. But I think some of what you've seen in this move is also people got off sides pre-election and the realization that the nuclear, um, uh, uh, nuclear was not only a focus, but a key pillar of Biden's uh, policies. And this is the first time that Democrats have been pro-nuclear since the 1970s. And so it's just a big shift. Um, that was further compounded by a Senate committee piece of legislation that came through last week 
um, which actually raised not only this idea of a uranium reserve, which has been talked about a lot, especially by U.S. producers, but I think in our minds, more importantly, the topic of subsidizing current existing plants to keep them online longer, um, as well as investing in the next generation of small modular reactors. And so again, um, when we initially underwrote this thesis and started thinking about the, you know, the, the risk reward of looking at nuclear over a five to 10 year period, um, we never had any build out for anything in the Western world. If you look at UFC or Trade Tech or any of the trade reporters, not only do they take nuclear down in the West, it comes down dramatically. So if you balance that with the amount of new builds happening in emerging markets, um, any sort of support to nuclear in the West becomes a huge right tail risk for supply and demand. And that's something that I think the market's just beginning to price in. Yeah. Okay. It feels to me like it is really unappreciated uh, how much this is a, an ESG play. And you've we at Real Vision have talked to a few people who have said, if you're thinking about ESG, the real money is to be made on things that are going to become ESG, but aren't considered it yet. Is that what you think about uh, uranium um, and, and nuclear more more broadly, is that it is clearly going to be part of the, the broader ESG pie, and it just isn't even on people's radar, or at least the market's radar at this point? Yeah, you know, great point. The, right now, you know, ESG rules are being written. And so to a certain extent, investors themselves get to bless what is ESG or not. Mm -hmm. um, we are working very hard in terms of you know, official criteria to make sure that um, you know, nuclear's emissions-free you know, footprint is recognized appropriately by the climate side you know, of ESG. And I think we're making great strides there, and I think the market is receptive to it. Um, but, but I think more importantly is how investors end up feeling about it and how they consider it in their portfolio. And in short answer, I think yes. Uh, investors realize that if you're putting climate first, the math fully uh, dictates that nuclear has to be a part of your transition mix. Or mathematically, it's not going to work. And we won't go through the examples globally where, where nuclear has been shut for renewables growth. But any viewers here that have followed us have, have read what we've written on the topic or spoken about on the topic, and, and it's pretty clear what happens. Um, you don't meet your targets. And so to a certain extent, as climate change and emissions targeting becomes more serious, almost by direct consequence, nuclear as an investable sector becomes more serious. Um, and, and that's a very good thing. From a headline perspective, and Arthur mentioned the West, you know, can't emphasize enough how uh, most investors, even including ourselves in our base case, originally considered that Western nuclear generation was going to decline. Mm -hmm. If that even were to flatline, no less grow, the general supply-demand numbers improve uh, in a very positive way. And you know, headlines drive markets for better or worse. But when the UK bullets out their 10-point clean energy transition plan, you know, and people have been skeptical about the UK's ability to maintain their existing nuclear fleet, no less build new ones, and nuclear essentially gets two mentions there in a 10-bullet plan, the market starts to realize uh, and recognize. And you know, I think we feel just very confident, again, because math usually wins out, that if you are a believer that climate wins, uh, nuclear has to win too. Yeah, you, you you mentioned UK specifically 
bulleting out nuclear. Um, I have here, you know, in our notes, uh, China, Japan, and Korea as being particularly important in their carbon neutrality pledges. Did they go as far as to as to outright ex explicitly say nuclear is going to be a big part of it? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You know, so if you just break those down one by one, it's a huge part of China's approach to clean energy. Um, they are building nuclear plants as fast as they possibly can. And the limiting factor in terms of speed there has actually just been developing proper personnel. But they've got 14 plants now in the very late stages, pre-construction, um, which, which will likely go into construction in the next 12 to 18 months. So we've, we've seen a huge ramp in, in China's focus. Um, but, but that's always been the driver. If you look at Japan, um, the, the new prime minister is clearly pro-nuclear. Um, they still have a target of around 22% of nuclear uh, by, I think it's 2030. That um, remains to be seen if it will be achieved. But all the signs there have been positive. And adopting, again, a carbon neutrality pledge makes leaving nuclear very, very difficult. Um, okay. Sorry, Adam. No, I, uh, before you move to the next country, I was I was just going to put some context around the China numbers, at least as an example. Yeah. But it, let's just say that they, you know, in 2018 or so, you know, are running, they're running shy of 50 gigawatts of generation. The target is 200 by 2035. You know, it's 135 by 2030. Um, you know, without graphs and charts and interacting with your viewers, it's, it's hard to put that in an exact context. But, you know, a close to tripling um, of generation is extraordinary. That growth in the context of how much nuclear capacity has been added since the technology was created, you know, let's say since the 50s, is significant. Um, it shouldn't be underestimated by the market. Sorry, Arthur, I didn't mean to interrupt you no, there. No. I just figured we'd... Exactly right. Um, and in South Korea, you know, you've got an administration that's obviously been against expanding nuclear, but you also have phenomenal expertise in country in terms of in terms of building nuclear plants. And so the question becomes if they're going to stick with a carbon neutrality pledge, the country does not lend itself well to renewables development. Um, and so you're either talking about just a tremendous amount of gas in the short term, but over the longer term, there really isn't a solution unless they dedicate to nuclear. They also have very young uh, fleet. So, so recommitting, um, whether it's this administration or the next, would have profound implications for the industry. And so again, when we think about what we watch, we clearly watch stock prices, but the much, much bigger developments in this space over the last 12 months have been these carbon neutrality pledges. Because at the end of the day, if you are going to get there, the math simply does not work without, without nuclear. Um, the last point I'd make is just, we've written a lot on ESG and the nuclear space. Uh, if folks want to read you know, a much longer write-up about how we think about it, they can go to our website. We, we put our thoughts down. Um, and we're also sitting on several advocacy groups for the technology. And so folks who are interested in it, we'd be happy to follow up. Yeah, I, I would like to move on to technology. And we do have some questions about uh, shifts in technology. We do have a bunch of questions, which we will get to towards the end. But there are a few points we want to get through first. Um, 
So we, we talked about COVID before and potential COVID risk, but we haven't really updated that. We, we briefly said Cigar Lake was, was announced to be shut down today. How, when is that shutdown actually going into place? And can we broaden that to, to talk about COVID risk more, more generally? Yeah, I can kick that off. So um, there's two dynamics in the market today. Um, one is that we still don't quite know how the COVID shutdowns from 2020 will affect Kazakh production in 2021. They haven't given clear guidance, but I, I don't think it's a stretch to say that, especially in the first three to four months of the year, you could have uh, impaired production numbers. And so, one, I would say that a lot of the cuts that, that triggered headlines and, and potentially um, some excitement in the space in 2020 aren't actually impacting the physical market until right about now. Um, the second thing I'd say with regards to Cigar Lake is that for this asset to shut down takes a few weeks. So um, we, are, we, we think it's unlikely that management, very similar to our March presentation to you guys, we think it's very unlikely that management would make this type of announcement and commitment if it was really a short shutdown. Um, so do we have a final timeline? We don't. But again, this is the largest single asset globally. Um, and last time they, they shut down for four and a half, five months. And so I think there's a very good chance that this stretches into the spring. Um, and what I'd really be focused on if I were an investor is what case counts and hospitalizations look like in the far north of Saskatchewan. So that's what we have been tracking over the last several months. And that is why over the last few weeks, we've been more and more focused on the idea of shutdown. Yeah. And Camco has really been, you know, an ESG leader, um, you know, publicly talking about safety coming first um, with, with, with their employees. And probably not unique to Camco, uh, similar to a lot of mining companies, they're, they're operating in rather remote jurisdictions. There's not a lot of hospital infrastructure. Um, it's multi-generational multi -generational living conditions. Um, and they've just been very proactive in making sure that they keep safety uh, as a priority. And so it's just echoing Arthur's point about the case counts. Um, obviously the virus is gonna have a big impact. And then you know the seasons do as well. Um, investors should be cognizant of the fact that they shut it down in the spring going into the summer last time. It's probably different from a mine engineering standpoint than shutting it down in the winter time. Um, and we probably don't have enough time on this call to go through that. But let's just say that there's, it's, you know, these mining these mines are, are rather complex, um, and the start stop times are very important to how long they end up being up or down. So I, I think it's really interesting to to ask though, what when when you hear an announcement like a mine is being shut down. You know, I think, okay, production's going to go offline, that's revenues are going to come down, that should be bad for the equity. But it, it has the effects on, on supply and demand and thus could be, you know, put upward pressure on price. So it's really about, how, you know, how long-term are you thinking? When you think about these sorts of short-term, I mean, it's not short-term if it's a couple of months, you know, that time frame differs for everybody. But when you think about a shutdown like this, is this is that a bullish story? Is that a bearish story? It's undoubtedly a bullish story. Uh, not to jump in there, Max, but, yeah. you know, Campco hasn't been valued on EBITDA since they first, you know, did a temporary shutdown of MacArthur River. Um, you know, what they signaled to the market is that their net asset value or their, their resource value over the cycle was worth more in the ground than as a, a sold cash flow contributor. So, you know, any I think any investor that looks at this and wonders about their you know, top line or even 
EBITDA impact from having to mine down is probably not understanding at least the way that the market has approved um, you know, Campco's valuation over the last couple of years. And that is also, to a large extent, what makes this more of a macro trade at the moment uh, than a micro trade. Sorry, Arthur, I think you were going to jump in as well. Well, it's probably just echo the fact that, you know, and maybe viewers have seen our, our prior, um, you know, uh, uh, Real Visions, but when they shut down, they are still delivering the term contracts that they've already booked. And so the net result is that not only is Camco not producing, but you will, and you saw it in today's release, you will actually see them scale up spot market purchases. So again, this is a very unique environment uh, and a unique commodity um, where you actually have the two largest producers not only cutting back production, but they are also the largest spot market buyers in the commodity. Um, so it's kind of up to utilities. They can come forward and start committing or the math gets tougher and tougher over time as inventories are drawn and, and as whatever material is coming to the spot market is actually bought by producers. Um, and so again, timing is tough to call with this. Could it be a two month shutdown Three months, we don't know. Um, it, again, a lot of it will depend on what's happening on the ground with COVID. But what I can tell you for sure is that whatever the supply-demand story was yesterday, it's greatly improved this morning. Yeah. Well, I, I would like to move on from where we are right now into your views on the future. What What is the most important thing that people need to pay, pay attention to if, if they want to be invested in this space? Um, and you talked a little bit before about the price cycle kind of being a fake out and that the CapEx cycle is the yeah. most important thing for people to focus on. So why don't we start there? Yeah, I hope that this is kind of the meat of the conversation. Um, you know, valuation is always kind of a, a tricky thing. Um, you know, how the emotional part of the market decides to value one thing over another. Um, and you're seeing a host of sectors, um, you know, clean tech may be, uh, at the forefront, that are getting very, very large valuation premiums based on what we're going to need in the future. Um, there are certain electric vehicle manufacturers that are benefiting from that premium, um, but there are other resource companies that are willing to look out you know, over a cycle um, based on what we believe is going to happen through the coming energy transition and, again, put, put a value on that. We think that the uranium market is not only valuing the future, but it's taking almost the most bearish capital cycle view you possibly could on the past, right? And uh, won't won't beat a dead horse, but the past is is one the last ten years defined by a post you know natural disaster induced you know Fukushima event, um, and that's what is being pulled forward. We think not only by the stocks, but honestly by a lot of industry players. Um, you know, again, deep bear market and looking in the rearview mirror. I mention that because, you know, if and when the market in earnest starts recognizing how important nuclear is to the energy transition, it is going to start looking, as you said, on the capital cycle more than the price cycle. So these stocks don't have to and frankly shouldn't go up and down based on what spot prices are doing. In our opinion, they should be absolutely going up based on what the future needs are for uranium and the fuel cycle based on supply-demand projections. And that should be done at least two, three, four, five years out into the future, given the lead time, um, which we've laid out before. And you know, you're seeing it in other industries, the psychological shift 
from looking at what the valuation is based on yesterday versus the future happens in an instant. Um, and so I think, uh, I know this is a little bit of a high level answer. Um, you can follow up with, with specific valuation questions afterwards, but we do not think the market is anywhere close to accurately reflecting what these companies are worth, whether you're a cash flowing entity like Kazatomprom or a very large resource company, uh, you know, future producer like uh, NextGen or Denison or Paladin that's on care and maintenance. Those companies are not being appropriately valued for what this market looks like next year, no less than four or five years. And as long as there is even stability in the nuclear in nuclear generation, you know, and demand, this market is structurally impaired. Yeah, I think that that leads nicely into a question for Arthur about you know how do you guys think about valuation, and then also what is the most important area for capex? You you basically indicate that that there isn't enough at the moment, and it's going to take probably some pain before the the capex that's needed comes in. Where is it most needed? Um, but but also I would like to ask about how you you think about valuations. Um, I, I would say a lot of what we're looking at here is Arthur, you're you're coming in kind of. Kind of low there. Yeah. Volume wise. Yeah, volume wise. I'm not sure whether the mic has changed. I haven't changed anything on this end. Can you hear me? Yeah. It, I'm, unfortunately, it is. It is still. I mean, we can hear you, but it, it's 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 very very muted and, and low. Um, but just just for the the sake of time, I'm sure Brian can can try and help you out there. But um, Adam, why, why don't we switch back to you then? Uh, how how you you said that, that it's undervalued, it's being unappreciated. How do you value the market? And when is the market going to see it like you do? Yeah. Um, so first and foremost, we probably have to break break down the fact that there are kind of three categories. There are three three broad categories of, of companies in the space. There are those that are currently producing. Um, there are companies that are on, you know, on care and maintenance. Uh, they have mines that are built and permitted, but they're but they're choosing not to produce. And then there are exploration and development companies. Um, and there's a wide range of of um, you know of, of different stage development within uh, exploration and development companies. Everything from kind of a wildcatting exploration that's done a few drill holes, all the way to you know companies have a full feasibility study and are ready to build a mine. You know if and when the time is right. And so each one of those obviously kind of requires its own you know, valuation technique. But broadly speaking, um, I think Segra has built an extraordinarily detailed supply-demand model um, from, from the you know, bottom up. Um, we layer those deficits that we project over the cost curve to try and plot out what is kind of Segra's forward curve in uranium. And we use that for mine model discount cash flow uh, analysis, mostly, um, as our core valuation technique. And so um, that's probably a lot of finance buzzwords. But basically, there's a market price on the screen today, which likely would prevent any new mine development or restart even of some key global assets, you know, see Camco. Um, but what we do is we model our highest probability view of prices over the next five to 10 years, and we choose to put those prices through our models uh, instead of the static price on the screen, um, which we know is very inefficient. 
um, and we get a you know present value nav for all of our holdings there that would be very differentiated from the market. Um, a lot of you know a, a simpler metric, um, especially for non-producing assets. Uh, again, exploration development companies would be to see how the market is valuing the you know the pounds that they have in the ground as a resource. Um, you know, we caution. This is a very kind of blunt force metric. Uh, we would caution using it um, for anything other than like a, a broad kind of um, guidepost, I guess, maybe for lack of a better word of saying, where where is the range of reserve value today versus at different points in other cycles? And I think we and other speakers have talked about this before, but we are very, very low relative to history. Um, the market is not giving much value to resources that we need in the future, um, yeah, to the tune of 90 to 95% discounts to other mid-cycle valuations. So um, needless to say, a lot of upside. Yeah. Arthur, why don't we see whether we've been able to fix it? Uh, my question would be, then what is it going to take? When is the repricing going to happen? What are the big um, catalysts for repricing that you think are coming? Well, uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, are those out? Yeah, unfortunately, we 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 can't. Maybe we can have um, have Brian have you leave and and join back in. But for the meantime, unfortunately, I think we'll have to to stick with Adam on the questions. Um, so Adam, what what is it that is going to um to be the catalyst for the market to to do this repricing that that we need? You that that's a difficult question because personally, I think. The market should have realized a year or a year and a half ago that the capital cycle was impaired, right? And so, at least in our opinion, I think we've laid out a pretty good case for why the market's in structural deficit. And unless we get incentive pricing in the market, nothing will be built or start producing to meet that supply-demand imbalance. Um, for a variety of reasons, that didn't occur, and the spring continued to coil. Um, and as a result, it might just mean that a more generic macro catalyst like nuclear's recognition in the clean energy transition is what causes it to re-rate. Um, you know, I don't like throwing around uh, broad examples, but your average lithium miner is worth more than, an ex than the best quality, you know, uranium development and exploration asset. Um, we're pretty firm believers that you can't have a world of electric vehicles that are backed by coal or gas generation. So that's a really, you know, that's a real broad example, but really the valuation gap is extraordinary. You know, the question that we ask ourselves is, you know, will there be the right momentum of headlines to convince generalist investors that nuclear deserves a place in your energy transition portfolio or your ESG portfolio. And Segra works every day to try and you know, build the case for that. We think it's pretty clear. And there's some optimistic signs that it's getting adopted. Um, but I do think that causes a big re-rating. In a worst case, you know, 2021, 2022, and every year after, um, you know, produce more and more uncovered demand are uncovered requirements for procurement from utilities. And eventually, when you get normalized buying in this market, Arthur brought up the inventory draws that we've seen over the last couple of years, but it, that's finite. 
Um, and as we move to a, again, a normal contracting and procurement cycle, the cost curve and commodity fundamentals will reassert themselves. And then you don't need Segra's model to tell you what price to put through your DCF. Um, you'll be able to see it on the screen. Okay. Arthur, real quick, before we get into audience questions, let's see if we can. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, we can. All there right. we go. Logging well, back in usually works. Yeah. All right. Well, well if there, one, if, can I make one other quick point just on certainly. the back? Because Adam mentioned EVs, which has clearly been, you know, something that's been a big ESG driver in the metal space. Um, the other point I'd make is just that when you invest in nickel and you make it an ESG investment because of its use in electric vehicles, um, you're also investing in, you know, stainless steel, which is what, you know, so, so I think what's unique about uranium within the metals and mining space is that it really has one use. You know, it gets used in civil nuclear power plants. Its other big driver is that it makes medical isotopes, which are a huge, you know, positive from ESG perspective too. So again, you know, when when capital starts to realize the value of clean energy and nuclear plants and the value of dedicating to a mining cycle related to that, there's no question about about where this material goes. It's a very straightforward process. Yeah, and that that's really interesting as well because as of right now, ESG isn't thinking, isn't really thinking that deeply about it. I think most ESG uh, indices have like Apple and Google as their top holdings. I mean, there's nothing explicitly ESG about those companies. But what you say about uranium is that it is explicitly ESG if you boil it down to the, the core principles of what people are trying to do there. Um, and perhaps that will be the big shift in when as people reevaluate what ESG really is. Yeah, I certainly from the climate side, uh, there is no arguing that nuclear power is emission free. Um, and I think that most smart people who we talk to also acknowledge that cars, again, electric vehicles can't be backed by a dirty grid uh, or, you know, you're shooting yourself in the foot. So it gets back to the point of something's got to give. Either you're not serious about the climate transition and it's just something that you're that the world is throwing out there. Um, and will be allowed. You know, the public will allow governments to kind of, um, you know, squirm their way out of actually meeting carbon neutrality or other targets. Or this is a serious theme. Um, governments will will be held accountable by their people, uh, and the math is going to assert itself. And and again, um, you know, the math is pretty clear on this. Yeah. Well, and, it, last thing, just that that's not like some crazy Segra model. If you look at any respected climate model, you know, IPCC, MIT, IEA, not only do they grow nuclear to hit carbon neutrality, but we're talking about multiples. And so, again, this is already consensus among scientists. I just don't think it's consensus among investors yet. And that's that's the shift we're, we're aiming at. Okay. Well, we, we do have a lot of questions and a lot of interest in this sector and your work from the audience. So I would like to, to switch gears now and turn it over to them to get to some of their questions. I'm sure that they will bring up a lot of uh, good points if we have missed anything. Um, we'll see if we can get to them from the audience questions. Um, so we'll start with a, a technology question from Steve. Uh, how do you guys feel the breeder reactor technology will impact uranium use? What is their concern over other countries who have directed their reactor designs toward alternative fuels than uranium? Adam, you want me to kick it off? Yeah, Arthur, kick this one off, sure. So, um, 
Listen, th there are a number of technologies being pursued for next generation reactors, and we think they're they're phenomenal not not only for um, the adoption of, of nuclear, but but also um, just generally for the climate. I mean, I think that again, if we are going to pursue carbon neutrality, um, something with a fast break reactor, it would be a phenomenal breakthrough. I think in terms of short term drivers of the uranium market, um, they're a little bit too far out. So a lot of these reactors, which are currently being um, uh, looked at, have been around in basic design form since the 1960s. Um, that's not to say that they won't end up impacting this market in the 2030s, 40s. Um, things like a molten salt reactor, there's a number of different designs that are very promising. Um, what I would say is that if you think about the capital cycle we're outlining, I, I think that um, it would be a mistake to be too excited about the near-term implications of those designs. For the most part, the designs that are closest to actually being uh, commercialized you know, are more similar to current uh, BWRs and PWRs. So you look at like the new scale design that's the farthest along in the NRC, it will still use relatively traditional uranium fuel. Um, if fast breeders are successful, I think it's great from a, and sorry, this is a big topic to tackle, on, yeah. on this platform, but it would be great from a, um, a waste standpoint um, because you could effectively start using um, nuclear waste as, as fuel. Um, but do I think that that will be a likely driver of supply and demand um, within this cycle? I, I just don't. Um, I think, again, great topic, maybe get some investor interest. Um, and, and do those designs have legs? I think they will. Um, but I think in terms of actually commercializing them within the time frame we're discussing it's just a bridge too far okay um let's see here lots of lots of good questions here um some of them are on things we've already touched on like srini wants to know uranium stocks are going up while yellow cake is not going up what is the disconnect i can cover that if uh, if you guys want i mean you know one, we think you know the discounts to net asset value on the holding companies, you know, yellow cake and UPC are kind of historically the best sentiment indicator for how much participation there is in the market. So, you know, Arthur and I mainly invest in the fuel cycle, um, you know, less in the physical commodity or the holding companies, um, but we certainly keep track of them and not always perfect, but the idea that when the holding companies trade at a discount to their NAV while positive things are happening, we are contrarians and we look at that as a contrary indicator for the fact that there's not that much froth in the market. So um, I think that's a positive thing. If you're asking kind of why, um, you know, I think that uh, unfortunately, recently yellow cake, probably just because of its liquidity, um, is kind of an institutional product. It's listed on the London Exchange. Uh, some retail investors in the U.S. Or, or, or North America generally don't have access to it, but it doesn't really have the liquidity at the moment for a large institution, which, which makes it inefficient. Mm -hmm. um, and I certainly don't give investment advice, but if you are bullish long-term, you know, buying uranium in the mid-$20 is a good thing. Yeah. Regardless um, of whether you have to you don't get the mark-to-market -market, uh, gratification immediately. Okay. Now, Mike actually had a question about YCA. So uh, he says, it's approaching levels where it could issue sh shares and exercise their Kazatomprom purchase option. 
how easy do you both think it would be for Zatomprom to find uh, three million pounds in the spot market? I can I can um, yeah. maybe tackle that. Um, you know, and and before I do, just want to point on the disconnect. If you do a long-term chart of the physical holding vehicles versus um, the the underlying like miners, it's actually just closing a gap that widened out this spring. So you actually had the miners far underperform on a relative basis the commodity, and so some of this is just a catch-up as well. So I just point that out. Um, in terms of how Yellow Cake would pursue their option, um, you know, it's not something that Yellow Cake has to worry about because Adam Prom has to go find the pounds. We know their inventories are already low, and we know that they've been purchasing in the spot market. So the answer is it likely impacts the spot market because you'll have additional buying. I do think within that structure there's some optionality on Kazadam Prom's part where they can actually dictate the delivery time point. And so it's not as if the option gets exercised and they owe them the yellow cake next week. So Kazadam Prom does have some flexibility on duration there. Um, what I would say is that it would be bullish for supply and demand in the short term and a great sign that the market's willing to effectively finance those pounds. But I'd also caution um, any listeners that it's not enough to trade close to NAV. They also have to have the demand for the placement. And so it takes uh, institutional capital wanting to buy at NAV to incentivize their, their exercise. Okay. But in, in the sense that it would be difficult for Kazanamprom to actually find that 3 million pounds, wouldn't that be almost in yellow cakes interest for them to have struggle to find that as it would maybe move the the price sure. up which is bullish for them would create interest um and and thus even even if they think because adam prom would struggle to find it that they might still exercise an option like that if if they can find the institutional interest yes if if listen if you were trying to trigger um upside moves in the spot price driving yellow cake to their nav with capital then financing the purchase price and having it be self-fulfilling, meaning adding 3 million pounds of short-term demand to the spot market makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, we, we do have a lot of questions about uh, different vehicles as, as ways to, to gain exposure. So you know, Tim asks what you think of Uranium Participation Corp as a vehicle. So Max, we're, you're probably not gonna like us so much for this, but we generally have to stay away from investment advice. Um, yeah. You know, take it up with uh, the regulatory bodies, but but we we try and stay uh, on the right side of this. Um, no specific recommendations from us today. Okay. I guess what I would say is UPC and yellow cake are similar in the sense that if you believe uranium is going higher, you know they're a relatively straightforward way to play that. All right. Well, Michael has asked a question about vehicles in a way that I think allows you to uh, to answer this question. So can you explain the difference between URNM and URA as, as ETFs? Sure. And, and Arthur and I are not ETF experts, but um, if you, if you, sorry, in that we don't buy and hold ETFs, but yes. we are familiar with the holdings of these two ETFs. What I would say is if you pull up either one of their prospectuses, um, you will see their top holdings. Um, and you can determine whether you like the companies that they hold and the weights uh, between the two of them, because they do not have the same uh, makeup. Okay. And I could probably tag on to that just briefly. Generally, URA is a much larger vehicle, so it, it, it should allow for greater liquidity. The downside is that right now, they still are, are not quite a pure play. 
They've gone through rebalancing last summer where they added more uranium exposure and took out some of the less levered names within the basket. Uh, that could continue in the future. Um, but for now, it's a trade-off between liquidity and being a pure play. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Okay. Um, one question here. A lot of questions actually about you know constructing a basket yourself. If somebody wants to get into individual names and thinking about the differences between. Uh, operating miners, explorers, and developers. How do you guys think about you know those those different buckets? And is there any particular area that you think has has good good tailwinds at the moment? Yeah. So we'll probably keep it a little general here. Sorry, Arthur. I'll, yeah, no. yeah, I'll, I'll kick it off, and then no. we'll keep it general here again without giving specific recommendations. But you know, we are believers in structural deficits and mispriced resources kind of you know, globally. Um, I think either Arthur or I at some point uh, have said on Real Vision you know, that Permian Basin assets and deep offshore assets, for those that might be more familiar with energy, are kind of valued the same in today's market um, because we are below an incentive price. And so we're big believers in buying the bottom part of the cost curve when they're valued the same. And we also really like scale uh, of projects. Um, we don't think that there is a border between the US and Canada uh, when it comes to uranium. Uh, we feel pretty good um, and increasingly so should everything go as it seems with President-elect uh, Biden. Um, we think those relations will only continue to improve. And so kind of the, the geopolitical scare that we had in the US um, with the Section 232 petition, I don't think ranks high on our list of long-term macro drivers in terms of our asset allocation, but instead the best quality resources or the best quality producing assets um, for the cycle that will actually mine and deliver uranium. And that's kind of a big line in the sand, to be honest. Um, as with any, frankly, mining uh, sector in general, but certainly one that's been in the dumps this long, there are a lot of promises, a lot of promises about the cost that can be achieved, a lot of promises about different kinds of mining techniques that can be used. And we're not saying this to be disparaging towards any company or to the sector as a whole, just speaking from a historical, objective, factual standpoint, most don't succeed. Um, and maybe it's because we're of an institutional size, um, but we, at least from a strategic standpoint, believe in picking the winners who will actually be, again, producing and delivering uranium, or if you're in the rest of the fuel cycle, being a real business to service uh, utilities. Yeah. And, and maybe what I'd add on to that without being too specific is just, and I think we've said this before, you know, quality development, meaning quality of ore body, you know, a, a real asset that we think this next cycle will be driving things that has the right cost structure to sustain ups and downs and what is always going to be a volatile resource space um, are key. So within metals and mining, there will always be um, like the, the torquey assets that maybe have a much higher cost, $70, $80. And the, the classic investor says that, okay, well, as uranium goes from 30 to 40 to 50, 
you, you actually get the most leverage sometimes buying the $70 or $80 cost asset that nobody thinks is possible to put into production. And, and maybe you know, that re-rating you know, drives the most returns. We understand why that conceptually makes sense. But what we're talking about, again, is a capital cycle. And so when capital enters this space to actually finance mines, to build assets, they're going to use the same rubrics that we do. And nobody wants to finance an asset that put, puts you into bankruptcy three years down the road. And so again, we don't think there's enough differentiation in the sector between quality and you know, real snake oil. And so we would just caution investors to say, you know, don't always focus on what's the cheapest today. Don't always focus on the really tarry events. Because in this environment, valuations are low enough that you don't have to go that far at the risk curve. Um, and we think that's something that a lot of retail specific, specifically probably get wrong here. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's like a deep out-of-the-money option. Just because it moves the most on a given day doesn't mean it still isn't very unlikely that it's going to finish in the money. Uh, yeah, that's, and, that's and, and we would account. caution everybody, you know, what we would, what we believe ends up happening. You know, look, the sector has moved a lot the last couple of weeks. It, it, it speaks to how little participation there is, how little ownership there is, how small the sector is. But we want to tell everybody, you know, there's going to be ups and downs. You know, there's going to be right now, even here, there's probably more room for, you know, we're still probably climbing the wall of worry in the sector, but eventually we'll kind of overshoot and then undershoot on our road to what we think is a sustained bull market in the sector. I only bring that up because, you know, how well capitalized a company is, their ability, as Arthur said, to produce through various cycle dynamics are all critically important. And you know, depending on the different stages of euphoria that you get into on any given trading day, you, you just have to be really cognizant and anchored in understanding what you own and their ability, the company's ability to succeed over the long term, not just you know, kind of where the day's macro euphoria leads you to. Um, and, and that's where a lot of the inefficiency remains in this market. Yeah. One question I would like to ask is I did an interview with a, a natural resources investor. We focused on what are the, the red flags to look at? You know, we were talking about gold mining stocks and there's the old phrase about, you know, what is a gold mine, but it's a hole in the ground with a liar on top of it. I'm sure in any resources sector, you get some aspect of that. Maybe gold is famous for it, but I'm sure it happens in uranium too. Are there any indicators that you look at that maybe have you weary about an individual name? We don't have to give too many specifics, yeah. but what are the red flags? It's, it's, a, it's a great example. I know Arthur's probably chomping at the bit here, but I'd say, you know, even recently, just before this little move, several uranium companies magically discovered gold prospects, you know, on their resource base and sold to investors how fantastic it was that with gold at $1,900 plus, that not only could they be a uranium company, but they're also a future gold company. Um, you know, it doesn't take a, a seasoned resource investor to point out that any pivot in business strategy is a major red flag. Um, sorry, Arthur, I jumped on you. I know you're probably chomping at the bit here. Yeah, this might be one we could do a whole segment on. I mean, I, I would say if the, if the pitch for the trade is not the asset, it's some other dynamic. It's because they, the management team did it before, and it doesn't really matter if they're high cost or in a bad jurisdiction, but you were the guys. That doesn't tend to drive metals and mining. I just think it's the wrong way to look at it. Um, Adam's right, moving into other, um, other commodities as a way to kind of gain 
leverage or basically gain followers are usually mining retail. Um, I also think if, if the argument for the asset ever entering production is that others are going to be too slow, that like, hey, the asset might not be great, but I could do it in 18 months. Well, in 18 months, it's going to be a phenomenal short, right? Because that asset through the cycle will not survive. And so, you know, there's a lot, if, if you've looked at junior mining before, you know, this sector has everything you're scared about and more. Um, but there's also, again, as Adam said, some real gems. And so we run a concentrated book. We look at, you know, our investments as long-term partnerships with management teams, and we're very selective. Okay. Well, we, we've reached the end of our time here. I'd like to give you both the opportunity to, to leave viewers with some closing thoughts. Um, and, and thank you to everybody for the questions. Unfortunately, we weren't able to get to them. And, and many of them are based on, you know, wh which mine, individual names. And unfortunately, we just, we just can't do that because of regulatory concerns today. Um, so I apologize to everybody for that. But uh, there, there's lots of great resources out there. But uh, gentlemen, thank you so much. But I'd like to give you this, this final minute here to, to put a bow on it. Yeah, I guess I'll start. You know, just one thing I realized, you know, segracapital.com is our website. Um, it's not full of information. Uh, some of that's behind a, uh, you know, a wall for our LPs, but we do have a commentary section um, where we've addressed some of the topics in more detail. Um, so we welcome anybody to, uh, you know, to, to visit the site and, and read up on it a little bit more. And then, um, you know, appreciate everybody tuning in and, just uh, keep your eye on the prize. You know, I, I think this has been a very, very difficult sector to invest in for a long time. And it means that the bull market is probably gonna cause a lot of doubt as well. Um, don't buy any of this. Don't buy our thesis, don't buy any companies unless you have a multi-year view. Uh, and that's not because of some, you know, hold on mantra or anything like that. It's because this is a very tricky cyclical sector um, that is opaque and has a lot of false signals. And unless you're ready to ride that out, it's, it's probably not the right place to be. Okay, Arthur? Yeah, he said it well. I think, um, I think it's, it's certainly a fascinating place to study because of hypercyclicality. But I would say that the vast majority of our time is spent looking at what's actually happening in the physical market, what fuel buyers are doing, you know, again, we, we have WNA members, we sit on the drafting boards of the fuel report. You know, most of our work is trying to give us a very differentiated view to, you know, sitting and watching the screens all day. And I think that the one, um, the one push I'd make is that if you, if you do want to invest in this space, do your homework, spend your time, um, because uh, it's, it's very hard to kind of know the nuts and bolts, but not be in the weeds and, and actually come out on top. All right. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. It's been a pleasure. And thank you again to all of the viewers at home. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.